Section 10 of Tin Horns and Calico by Henry Christman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 Law and Order. While Dr. Boughton and the other two anti renters spent their first uneasy night in jail, landlords and politicians sat up mapping out their strategy. The next morning, Hudson was awakened by the hysterical drums of law and order. A heavier guard was thrown around the jail. Artillery, loaded with grape and canister, commanded every approach. By the time the morning papers arrived on the street with the story of the death of Bill Reifenberg, the machinery of propaganda was already in motion to create strain and confusion. The Columbia Republican intimated that the death was murder and accused the anti-renters, he had been heard to shout up-rent and was known to have expressed sentiments against the Indians. Another paper said the young man had refused to shout down with the rent. But when the coroner almost immediately returned a verdict of accidental death, the story was dropped from the newspapers, and rumors began to sweep through the town, leaving a wake of frantic alarm. Thousands of Calico Indians were reported already on the march to burn Hudson and release Big Thunder. A courier sent for help from the governor had been captured, it was said, and was being held by upriver warriors. The truth was that Sheriff Henry Miller had told a delegation of anti-renters that, according to the terms of Dr. Boughton's surrender, he would be freed at eleven o'clock that morning. A thousand farmers had flocked to town to carry their leader home in triumph, and District Attorney Theodore Miller seized upon the consequent excitement as a pretext for calling off the hearing. The fortunes of the landlords were beginning to look up. Governor Boak would be retired in two weeks, and they were confident that Silas Wright could be depended upon, owing to the influence of Martin Van Buren who had hobnobbed with the aristocrats so long that he had lost all touch with the common people who gave him his start. That former Jeffersonian Democrat had stated publicly that he considered the anti-renters guilty of the darkest crimes. Joseph D. Monell and the influential barn burners who had engineered Wright's election were landlord spokesmen, too. These men sensed that for the sake of Democratic Party prestige, Dr. Boughton had to be kept in jail until Silas Wright took office. In the meantime, his detention could be used to provoke tenant disorders. Thus, Bouck's conciliatory policy would be completely discredited, military intervention would be justified, and decisive suppression of anti-rentism would follow. The first move, employing the technique of oblique assault, was a solemn, frank, and friendly appeal to the anti-renters from 59 disinterested citizens and city fathers of Hudson, including Monell. Friends and fellow citizens, are you fully sensible of the danger and responsibility of your position? Are you quite prepared for the punishment of death or imprisonment? Do you know that resistance to the constituted authorities of the land is high treason? If the legislature is competent to afford you any relief, approach it in the ordinary way and in a peaceful manner. If the covenants of your leases are odious and oppressive, accept no more leases on like terms, and appeal to the honor and magnanimity of your landlords in regard to those that already exist. 
Your landlords, we have every reason to believe, are disposed to sell on equitable terms. We are bound in frankness to say to you that after having taken leases from your lessers, after having paid them rent for a series of years and acknowledged them as your just and lawful landlords, you are not at liberty to dispute their title. In fine, we appeal to you to lay down your arms, to submit cheerfully and completely to the benign authority of the law, and to allow us again to claim you as our esteemed fellow citizens. Frantic appeals for military protection for Hudson were sent to Albany, but wary Farmer Boak first dispatched the Attorney General to find out how much of this clamor was based on fact and how much on hysteria. Thurlow Weed's evening journal, done with its pre-election courtship of the Calico Indians, promptly came down on the governor with all the treachery of a practiced political knife-wielder. It was ridiculous to send the Attorney General to Hudson. Why should not the old white horse also be sent on a mission? Perhaps his neighing reverberating through the hills of the Helderberg or Catskill might frighten the Indians from their propriety and quell the disturbances once and forever. One mission would be equally effectual with the other, and both on a par with that of the governor himself to West Sandlake last summer. The governor must do his duty or meet the consequences. The outrages are too marked, too notorious, too alarming to be winked at longer. The Allied landlords and politicians did not expect to convince Bauck at this point, but they wanted to win over the working people of Hudson. Many of the dock hands and shipbuilders on the waterfront were sons of tough whaling men who had moved up the Hudson from Nantucket before the War of 1812, seeking bases of operation less vulnerable to attack from the British Navy. These Yankees had a natural suspicion of landlords and politicians, and were not so easily aroused as the middle-class conservatives. When the Attorney General arrived in Hudson, the town was riding the crest of hysteria. It was reported that the anti-rent warriors had threatened that if men and money could accomplish the rescue of Boughton, neither should be wanted. Captain Edward P. Cowles pledged his company of light guards to the protection of Hudson. Law and order meetings were called to enlist 500 men to hold themselves in readiness at all times with muskets loaded, to assemble at Davis's City Hall at the first peal of the Presbyterian Church bell. The Attorney General was moderately impressed. He promised four field pieces and a hundred stands of ammunition to equip a volunteer army of one hundred, but there would be no state troops. Accepting their defeat, the Hudson City Council met in special session and sent for the Albany Burgesses Corps, denounced by the tenants as a mercenary aristocratic company patronized and petted by old Van Rensselaer. At the same time, the press launched a crusade of character assassination against Dr. Boughton. He had once seduced a young girl, said one paper. Another declared that he was trying to buy his freedom with betrayal of his comrades, that officials from other anti-rent counties had come to Hudson to consult with him, and found him now with little color to his cheek and not a feather on his head, revealing all the secrets of the council fire. Big Thunder turns out a very coward, having fainting fits and cold sweats at the slightest noise. But District Attorney Theodore Miller's actions gave the lie to these slanders. 
he had to go outside his own county and raid Dr. Boughton's home in the Alps without a warrant, in an effort to find the damaging evidence that he could not wring from Boughton himself. Immediately after the postponement of Boughton's hearing, Columbia County tenants went to the other leasehold counties to plan joint action. The leaders agreed that the time for force had not yet come. They wanted to test the legal channels first. Anti-rent lawyers were sent to Hudson with pledges up to $200,000 for bail. It was refused. The authorities had dropped all pretense of willingness to release the doctor on bail. The farmers of Columbia County then threw their economic power against the town. Their secretary reported, We are concerting measures that will bring the city gentry to their senses if they are determined to make common cause with feudalism. The Hudson folk sent to our neighborhood for supplies, but we are resolved to burn them sooner than let them go to Hudson. Whole packages of papers that have taken a stand against us have been returned with the word stop. We are determined, as the war has started, no longer to support our enemies, and we have determined on one thing more, and that is to carry the war into the enemy's camp by cutting off supplies. In the meantime, apologists for the landlords proceeded as if the farmers had already committed fresh violence. The Sunday before Christmas, the Reverend Henry F. Harrington of the First Unitarian Church in Albany delivered an ardent plea for the landlords, taking his text from James chapter 1, verse 21, For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. He was alarmed over the indifference and apathy of the people in the face of tenant outrages, and deplored the fact that there were no boiling eddies of emotion, no thronged and earnest assemblages of the people in the majesty of their strength and the still prouder majesty of veneration for truth, right, and law, to consult over the peril of the whole social fabric, to express in the thunder-tones of universal conviction, a tone more terrible than the roar of artillery, the indomitable energy of those convictions, and to display the giant power of prompt and inflexible determination. He brought up the old argument that the leases were voluntarily assumed and therefore just, Nothing stands forth in this whole matter in clearer aspect than that every instance of resistance to the law has been perfectly gratuitous and uncalled for. The whole process of events is prejudicial to the exculpation of the conduct of the malcontents from the censure of every thinking man. Censure, do I say, nay, rather detestation and abhorrence. On Christmas Day the Albany Burgesses Corps arrived, and tramped the streets of Hudson in full dress. Mayor Cyrus Curtis read a long proclamation commending Joseph D. Monell for his part in the arrest of Big Thunder, and attributing to the anti-renters a new threat of fire to the city. Remember, citizens, he warned, that no policy of insurance will cover losses by fire when caused by invasion or insurrection or civil commotion, let us do our duty. Prompt action may save much treasure and many lives. It was incongruous talk for Christmas, but something had to be done to combat the holiday spirit of tolerance, or else Dr. Boughton would have to be released on bail before the new governor could take over. The doctor had been in jail eight days, heavily ironed, without any sign of an overt move by the tenant organizations, 
Many years afterward, in his memoirs, Boughton said he received a letter from William H. Seward offering to defend him without a fee, but the former governor met with an accident on his way to Hudson. There is no record in Seward's autobiography confirming this offer, but it is known that on December 26, 1844, the former governor was under a surgeon's care at Stockport, just four miles from Hudson, after having been thrown from his favorite seat on top of the stage beside the driver. Meanwhile, in a final attempt to stir up open rebellion before Wright took office, Sheriff Henry Miller carried the fight to the tenants once more. Despite the rumors that the Indians were armed and ready to march on the city, and the fact that he had volunteers and mercenaries at his disposal, Miller sent a single deputy to make arrests in the tenant stronghold of Kopeik, and another to close a sale at Ancrem, also a hotbed of anti-rentism. Both men were turned back by calico warriors without a struggle, and again a delegation went to Albany to inform Governor Bauck that the sheriff had been forcibly resisted in his efforts to make arrests by a very formidable party of Indians. Pushed to the wall at last, because he was unwilling to take the responsibility for a course which he could not see through to a finish, the governor passed the issue on to his successor, who happened to be spending the holiday season in Albany with friends of the Van Rensselaers preparatory to taking office. Silas Wright no longer had to make up his mind about anti-rentism. Events, friends, and enemies had done it for him. The agitation fomented by political leaders, the press, and the church, all the landlord's cat's paws, was at a peak. The political press was beating a tattoo for law and order, and Whig and Democratic journals were heatedly exchanging recriminations for past encouragement given to the tenants. Thurlow Weed's evening journal, now called Governor Bouck's suspension of rent collection a high crime, and accused him of having slept for a half-year while his officers were being maltreated, robbed, and their lives endangered. Edwin Crosswell's Argus retorted scathingly, the attack comes with peculiar grace from the evening journal, the organ of the party which nominated and elected a portion of the anti-rent ticket. Really, the journal is in a hurry to cut its associations during the last political campaign. Unabashed, the journal countered with a reminder that it was dangerous for the dwellers in glass houses to be very free with throwing stones. Has the editor forgotten, it inquired, the missions of its party leaders to all anti-rent towns, and the weeks spent in earnest and untiring endeavors to effect a union. The church, too, was paying its debt for liberal gifts from the landed gentry, some of whom included in their leases a stipulation that the tenants must contribute annually to the church. The people were exhorted to rise and put down the tenant threat of revolution, Copies of Rev. Mr. Harrington's sermon of December 22nd were widely distributed in the hope of good. Appeals signed by many citizens filled the newspapers, urging the people to rise against the tenants to prevent total anarchy. The papers gave prominence to a candid and disinterested statement by the Rev. Cortland Van Rensselaer, the former missionary, a heavy responsibility rested upon the tenants in the sight of God, wrote this son of the good patroon. In refusing to pay rent, they were shrinking from duty. 
the only course for his brothers, Stephen the Fourth and William, was to continue their fair offer of compromise and their frank Christian and friendly spirit toward the tenants. The legislature had no choice but to throw the full weight of its authority on the side of the law. He had examined the issue with open mind and found the tenant's challenge of title absurd. The wisdom of the quarter-sale provisions of the leases had been proved by the unfortunate results of his father's leniency in its enforcement. If the good patroon had not relaxed his enforcement, many troublesome spirits who were stirring up their contented neighbors would never have been on the manor. There was no evil in a man's becoming rich from the labor of others. Providence has made distinctions in society, he stated positively. The rich landlord and the less rich tenant have their respective rights and relative duties. It makes no difference to the tenant, as far as the obligations are concerned, whether his landlord is rich or poor. On the wave of such agitation, Silas Wright found it easy to reconcile party interest and personal conscience. By the time Bauck called him in, his plans had been blueprinted by Democratic Party leaders. Michael Hoffman had advised him that new enactments might be necessary against the employment of Indian or other disguises to cover criminals in their crimes. Some changes may be required to secure a speedy and impartial trial, if there should be danger that sheriffs may be renters, the power to disperse mobs, suppress riots, and arrest and detain offenders must be given to some other safe, known, and independent magistrate. There is but one serious danger in this business, and that is that the landlords may join with the tenants to cast on the state, in the shape of debt, their rents against the tenant. The new governor meant to give no quarter to the anti-renters, they had placed a rebellious army in the field, and so had forfeited their right to appeal for relief. Now he was presented with the double opportunity of allaying the fears of the hunkers that the party was going radical, and at the same time destroying the growing political threat of anti-rentism. Accordingly, he ordered the Albany Republican artillery to report at Hudson. On December 29th, the newly arrived artillerymen attended services at the Episcopal Church in Hudson, where they heard an admirable sermon on anti-rentism. Power comes from God, the minister proclaimed. It was delegated by providence to our governor and other ministers of the law. Resistance to the powers that be is rebellion against the Almighty. After church, with this analysis still echoing in their ears, the Albany Republican artillery and the people of Hudson had a chance to see the deputies of the deity in triumphant action. Deputy Sheriff Thomas Sedgwick clattered down the street with James Reynolds, an accomplice of Boughton, in irons, escorted by twenty members of the Albany Burgesses Corps. The raiding party had stormed Reynolds's house the night before, and after smashing in the front door, had found the anti-rent leader hiding in the garret, the Columbia Republican reported, Arms found in the possession of the prisoner were ready for use, but he was so suddenly and unexpectedly pounced upon that it seems he had no time to use them. Sheriff Miller's first military communique to Albany read, Reynolds is now safely lodged in jail, to the great joy of our citizens that such a desperate leader is secured. When Silas Wright took office on January 1st, a deputation from Hudson was waiting 
with a report of new tenant plans for a determined attack on the city. Charles Lapham, another calico warrior arrested by the sheriff, had admitted that Walter Hutchins of Minkville had taken over Boughton's leadership. And if Boughton is not out of jail soon, Hudson will smoke, Lapham had said. He also revealed that calico disguises had been secreted along the roads leading to Hudson. Wright at once ordered Captain Crack's cavalry to proceed from New York City by fast boat. Hudson officials were confident that this action would have the happiest results. But the New York Evening Post was gloomy, quoting Joseph D. Monell and Killian Miller, two cool old Dutch lawyers who had gone to the farmers in an effort to arrange a peace. They had learned that while some Indians were willing to give up, most refused to submit and still clamored for title. Monell reported men moving afresh in a rebellious manner. The tenants countered with a warning through the working man's advocate. If your hot spurs should shed one drop of anti-rent blood, our allies, the Indians, threatened to have scalps to pay for it. To reports that troops were coming from New York, the tenants replied with the threat of extending their boycott. Our merchants will be required to trade in Philadelphia. We will not trade, even for a sixpence worth of calico, with any city that sends troops to collect rents, and there is no need of troops for any other purpose. Captain Crack's one hundred handsomely mounted men arrived in Hudson the very day they were summoned, bringing the total of state troops in the city to three hundred and twenty-five. Sheriff Miller sent word to the governor that this display of might had brought encouraging signs of tenant capitulation. Several of the most noisy anti-renters had observed rent day. He soon learned that he was over-optimistic. The postmaster at Elizaville sent word that Walter Hutchins had inquired at the post office about a letter he was expecting from Rensselaer County regarding a raid on the Hudson jail. This time there was some truth to the report. On the ground that Dr. Boughton was being denied his constitutional rights, Hutchins was planning to lead a band of 4,000 masked warriors from a number of manor towns, a deputation from seven or eight counties was secretly sent to Dr. Boughton's council to find out if the doctor would consent to the raid. On mature reflection, Boughton rejected the plan, fearing that it would cause bloodshed and would involve the state in a civil war. At the same time, anti-renters in many towns held meetings on New Year's Day, hoping to forestall legislative action by voting to disband the Indians and officially sever all connections with the Calico. In some instances, they even pledged to suppress further riotous proceedings. Public approval began to swing back to the tenants, and many who had been openly opposed to the masked bands now came out with promises to support every peaceful and lawful means of redress. The Troy Whig commented on the good spirit that prevailed for the beginning of the year 1845. In New York City, Thomas Ainge DeVere issued a call to the National Reformers to meet on January 2nd in protest against the dispatch of the cavalry troops from New York. Troops have gone from this city equipped with the instruments of death, he announced in the summons, for the purpose of commencing civil war to establish feudalism over freedom. Even the sidewalks outside Croton Hall were crowded for the meeting. 
but when the reform speakers arrived, they found the platform already in the possession of an adjutant from the arsenal. He was reading a string of resolutions that breathed fire and sword. Whereas this meeting has been convened for the purpose of sustaining the anti-renters, and whereas every good citizen of this republic will recognize the supremacy of the laws over physical force in the security of justice and our rights, therefore be it resolved that we disapprove of the insurrectionary course of the anti-renters, that as good citizens we will aid in the suppressing of those lawless outbreaks of the tenants. Throw him out, clamored the crowd. John Wint pushed Thomas Devere toward the platform. Go forth and replenish the earth, Devere shouted, and for an hour afterward the wiry Irishman held the audience with his oratory. We want no revolution. It is to prevent such, if possible, that we are met here. The French Revolution was produced by landlords endeavoring to force on the people such a system as is now attempted by Van Rensselaer. It was through such proceedings as the Indians have now adopted that the glorious freedom of this country was accomplished. It was the Indians who came down to Boston Harbor and destroyed the tea, while the preachers of law and order were discussing the matter. George Evans came forward with a resolution condemning the sending of troops, and reminding the landless men of the cities that their taxes would pay for the civil war being waged by the landed aristocracy, while they themselves are suffering from land monopoly by crowded, dependent, and unnatural congregation in the cities. Bennett's Herald called the meeting a part of a broad movement to destroy private property. If the constituted authorities are unable to carry the laws into execution, and these anti-rent principles obtain the ascendancy, the next move will be to divide the public lands, to abolish all rent, to destroy all leases, and to throw society back to its original elements, where wild in wood the noble savage ran. George Evans observed in his paper that the condemnation heaped upon the reformers by the metropolitan press succeeded only in filling Croton Hall to overflowing, he was elated that the tenants refused to be subdued by the military, and declared that, at the rate things are going on among the anti-renters, I feel that we agrarians shall lose the title of radical, the only one I ever coveted. Aware of the danger of being buffeted by the shifting winds of public opinion, Silas Wright sent the adjutant general of the state militia to Hudson on January 3rd to make a strictly confidential study before his message to the legislature was fixed beyond alteration. Word had reached him that the people of Hudson were becoming alarmed over the huge military bill they would have to pay, though the Columbia Republican assured them that the governor's prompt action was saving them months of service for perhaps ten times that number of troops. Wright wanted the officer to find out if the military force was greater than needed, and whether the cost of keeping that force was too high. He was to warn Sheriff Henry Miller not to expect the governor to recommend the payment of extravagant or unreasonable bills, and to urge upon District Attorney Theodore Miller the necessity for caution, lest any acts of the military might give the impression of rashness, vengefulness, or retaliatory feeling. During the adjutant general's stay in Hudson, Deputy Sheriff Thomas Sedgwick returned from a four-day expedition into tenant territory, 
to report a raid on the home of Walter Hutchins at Minkville. When the troops aroused Mrs. Hutchins in the night, she told them she was alone with nine children and the farm to take care of. Walter had been in Schoharie for six weeks, she said, and she wished she could see him again. Not until too late did Sedgwick discover that she had hustled Walter out of the house just as the troops arrived. By the time he took up the chase, the tenant leader had disappeared into the woods. This fruitless expedition served further to discredit the clamor in Hudson. Immediately after his return to Albany, Rufus King, commander of the Albany Burgesses Corps, son of the famous United States Senator and nephew of landlord John A. King, announced that troops were no longer needed, as the display of power and determination had been attended with the most salutary results. Governor Wright thereupon ordered home all units except the artillerymen, and Hudson set the date for a gala farewell ball on January 8th. On January 7th, Silas Wright delivered his message to the legislature. Recognizing that the feelings and sympathies of the people were deeply enlisted in the anti-rent controversy and strongly inclined in favor of the tenants, he professed that he would have liked to invite the legislature's careful attention to a consideration of relief measures, but he felt precluded from such discussion by the extravagant and indefensible position given the controversy by the unlawful and violent proceedings of those who assumed to take charge of the rights and interests of the tenants. He said he could not believe that the great body of the farmers were either parties to or conscious and willing accessories of these violations. In a masterpiece of specious reasoning, Wright defined the state constitution as the security of the feeble and dependent against the wealthy and powerful, and maintained that in taking up weapons to break down and destroy that protection and security, the tenants only invited the invasion by landlords of their rights and privileges and liberties. May I not finally appeal to those who have become reluctant members of these mistaken associations to sustain such illegal and criminal proceedings, now to step boldly out and resume their duties to society and their country. The message might have made more stir in the leasehold counties if they had not already known what to expect of Silas Wright. It was only a confirmation of his previous commitments, tempered slightly by the withdrawal of the troops. In Hudson, meanwhile, plans were going forward for the farewell ball to the army, and the town was gay. Ever since the strain of panic had relaxed, the wags and the loafers had been playing innumerable pranks on the troops. According to a reporter sent up from New York, one night a man was forced to drink a quart of hot water from a tea kettle and then run four times from the ferry landing to the public square with two strings of bells around his neck. The noise created all kinds of stories. Some said a detachment of anti-renters had come from Copake to burn the city. The church bell began to ring, and people were in much tribulation, especially the old ladies. Shortly after midnight on the night before the ball, a lone sentry marched back and forth before the white-pillared Hudson House. The city was dark, stars hung lights in the cold sky, and only the crunch of snow underfoot broke the stillness. Suddenly a horseman loomed in the dark, pulled up short, 
and fired a shot that whipped past the sentry's head and lodged in a pillar. The rider galloped away, and the city was aroused by excited cries that the siege had begun. No one ever knew whether it was the work of another prankster or a genuine attack on the sentry, but dawn broke without any further disturbance or signs of Indians. The city fathers went on with the ball, but when the soldiers came that night they stacked their guns in the ballroom ready for action. It was a splendid affair. The Hudson girls had never seen so many handsome men, and according to the newspapers they danced until the wee hours. Sometime after midnight, however, Captain Crack's mount and horses for twenty of his men were brought up to the hall. A picked company that included Deputy Sheriff Thomas Sedgwick rode off quietly into the darkness, the sound of hoofbeats deadened by the new-fallen snow. The party reigned silently before the home of Walter Hutchins in Minkville. The soldiers took their posts with rifles ready while Sedgwick knocked at the door. After a long delay, the door was opened and the deputy tramped in. In Hutchins's bedroom, he found a man's coat, vest, and socks on the floor. The bed was empty but warm. Allow no man to pass at the peril of his life, he called to the men outside. The riders closed in. Walter Hutchins was found in the garret and dragged from his hiding place on a ceiling-like shelf. A fast rider was rushed to Hudson to prepare the city for a triumphant entry at dawn. They've got Hutchins. The shouts fell on people's ears as Hudson awakened. They've got Hutchins. Sheriff Henry Miller met the troops near the city and climbed into the box beside the anti-rent chief. With the band playing and horses held in parade rain, the company moved into the city. The people who lined the streets knew Walter Hutchins and had never thought of him as a dangerous man. When they saw him paraded through the town by a heavily armed military, they were suddenly embarrassed. Hutchins, schooled in the taunts of the anti-rent platform, made the most of the ludicrous situation. He laughed and pointed derisively at the rifles, sabers, and natty uniforms of the cavalrymen, completely winning the sympathy of the spectators. Criticism of the holiday spirit attending his capture mounted. Even the landlord-inspired reports of Hudson's great joy in knowing that one of the principal instigators of lawless and violent proceedings was behind bars failed to stem the tide. Dispatches were hurriedly invented that Walter Hutchins had a field piece planted before his door and was prepared to make a formidable resistance. Nettled by the displeasure and the ridicule, Sheriff Miller turned upon Captain Crack for directing him to act the conqueror. His explanations only made his position worse. While the troops were packing up, a reporter for the Albany Argus went to the Hudson jail to see Dr. Boughton. He found the scourge of the landlords, a young man of genteel appearance and prepossessing address, the reverse of everything indicated by thunder, big or little. When he entered, Boughton was reading, but at once arose. He was introduced to me as Big Thunder, the interviewer reported. He immediately corrected my attendant, saying, evidently annoyed, that that was not his name, but Dr. Boughton. Asked how he felt, the doctor said he was not well in either heart or body. I have left a young wife and an infant child at home, he said. The thought of that is enough. 
There were tears in his eyes, and the reporter turned away embarrassed. The troops had scarcely returned to Albany before Ira Harris, the anti-rent legislator, was on his feet in the assembly, celebrating their heroism by reading aloud the Albany Evening Journal's account of the capture of James Reynolds on the preceding December 29th. Harris dwelt bitterly on such details as the report that Reynolds's son had been floored with a blow from a gun, and that the troops had searched for Reynolds in the dark garret by plunging their bayonets into the rafters. The journal's account had it that when lights were brought, the prisoner was found pinned to the wall, a bayonet through one hand. Realizing that the full responsibility now rested on his shoulders, Silas Wright called for an explanation of this use of troops. Rufus King made a studied reply, accusing Harris of wanting the assembly to believe that an erroneous and exaggerated newspaper account was the official report, when in truth Reynolds had not been harmed at all. It was true, he admitted, that entry was forced, but no movement was made, nor shot fired, nor act done, except in pursuance to the distinct and positive orders of the deputy sheriff. King's interpretation was accepted by the governor. Officially, the matter was closed, and although Wright knew that Ira Harris had raised an issue that might return to plague him, he did not intend to be diverted from his determination to finish the anti-renters. End of Section 10 Recording by Maria Casper